Welcome to Getting Curious. I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. On today's episode, I'm joined by returning guest, Sally Holloway, where I ask her, what's the steamy history of Valentine's Day? Ah, I love that. Welcome back to Getting Curious. Oh my God, I'm so excited. I just got chills on my triceps because we have such a good episode today. We're learning about stuff. You know I love a history episode, which are we going to officially petition in 2023 for it to be changed to history? I just think let's get back into Latin. Let's like change it for the way that it should be. But I digress. That's for a different episode. Today, you cannot walk through a drugstore almost like anywhere in January or February without seeing a Valentine's Day card, without being bombarded with this you know, love emotion. I was going to try to do that thing in Moulin Rouge, this ridiculous obsession with love. But was this holiday always this big of a deal and this commercial? On this week's episode, we are exploring the history of Valentine's Day with a guest that is so close to our hearts, Dr. Sally Holloway. If you have been under a Getting Curious Rock, Dr. Sally Holloway is a historian of gender, emotions, and visual and material culture in Britain and the world over the long 18th and 19th centuries. She joined us last year for an incredible episode all about love and courtship in Georgian England. It was our Bridgerton-inspired episode, like, learn so much, can't get over it. She's the author of The Game of Love in Georgian England, Courtship, Emotions, and Material Culture. And she's currently working on another book all about heartbreak. Dr. Sally Holloway, how are you? I'm good, thank you. Thank you for having me back on. Can I tell you a brief side story? I literally found this ring from a vintage jewelry shop and it's from Georgian England and I wore it today for this episode. It's literally like a gajillion years old. It's like from literal Georgian England. It's giving like 18th century like construction. But let's get down with our bad selves before we travel back centuries. We got to hear about your past year. How are you? What have you been up to? Catch us up. I'm good. Thank you. I have just finished writing something about the role of food and food gifts in the process of courtship. I'm starting some new work on the history of proposals. So uh, how people propose marriage in practice increasingly from the 18th century, they might do that in writing. So we've got tens of thousands of written proposals in the archives that no one's really studied before. Uh, And then, like you said, I've been writing my new book on heartbreak. Ah, we're going to have to have you back to talk about the Heartbreak book because I got so many questions (laughs) about it. And like, if it was such a rocking, like Adele, like, I'm losing you, like moment, or if it used to be more like, ah, like I just, ah, it also is bringing up like Edith when she gets jilted at the altar. I'm not going to get distracted, Jonathan, but I just cannot wait for that book. Is there anything you can like tease or spoil for us about like Georgian Heartbreak that you've learned that you just find really fascinating so far? So far, what I've been focusing on are the sorts of rituals that people went through. So like when your relationship ended, what did you physically do uh, to bring it to a close? And for most people, that was returning their gifts, returning letters or, or burning them. So I've been studying this one couple who in the 1780s, he proposed to her, but then he withdrew it a few months later because she was so ill. He said that she was in no fit state to become a wife because she wouldn't be able to bear him children, he was thinking. Well, goddamn, thank God she found out before she jumped in bed with his ass because like he wasn't even like about it for the sickness and health thing. 
No, exactly. But it's, it's really sad because, you know, she wrote back talking about how devastated she was and she never married. He went and married someone else. She remained single for the rest of her life. But the irony is they died the same year. She lived just as long as he did in the end. Ah, uh, I always have to ask about this. Have you found any like archival letters about like when someone proposed, but then like their gay lover or because it was so treacherous, like to be discovered being gay then that like they're just like really hard to find a gay letter or have you found any like gay letters yet? Yes, there are a fair few and also diaries as well. Like there are a few accounts of two women having a marrying ceremony, for example, and exchanging rings and pledging themselves to each other. So they do survive. What year? Actually, there's a book. It's uh, by Rachel Hope Cleves. It's called Charity and Sylvia. And they're in America. You should read it. It's a really amazing book. Oh, my God. It makes me sad that even after all these years and all the different historians who've explained to me like what the long centuries mean, and no matter how many times it takes me 30 minutes, and then we usually cut it out of the episode anyway, because I go through this like quarterly. If you're challenged with like centuries to the actual years that they are like me, and we were saying like the long 18th century, really, those would be like ish, you know, give or take the years from to, huh, like from X to what? From Glorious Revolution, 1688, to end of the Napoleonic Wars, 1815. 1815. Okay. I'm not a murderer, but if I was a murderer, the secret room that they would find in my house would be like a whiteboard full of like 18th century equals 1700s. Like it would just be like that written, like like just like what centuries mean like everywhere because it's what I can't wrap my head around. But then like the long 18th century, like give or take is like the... Eventually, it's the period from the tail end of the 17th century right through the 18th century to the opening decades of the 19th century. So if mainly the 1700s. But if you're talking about the Georgians, you would say 1714 to 1830. Okay, great. Comment 1A and 1B. 1A, your fucking sweater with flowers is so goddamn cute. 2023, I'm like over not complimenting. Like I'm into complimenting now and I just, I always have been, but I'm not going to fight it in my podcast anymore. But yeah, great sweater. And then what should we keep in mind when we discuss this era? The era is really important for studying the history of romantic relationships and the history of Valentine's Day particularly because it witnessed a number of major social changes. So it saw the growth of towns and cities, the growth of shops and shopping as a leisure activity. So the the verb shopping was uh, coined during this period. Uh, People would talk about going as shopping. The spread of literacy, meaning more people could write letters and then later send cards to one another. And then finally, it's all the celebration of romantic love. It's a really important cultural ideal, uh, particularly love within marriage, which was presented as a key route to, to lasting happiness. Because like prior to that, were marriages more like in Europe, like more arranged or for like familial, like more business minded? Like it wasn't really like thought of like a love thing. Like you're lucky if it turned into love, but it wasn't necessarily the point. Yeah, it wasn't the be all and end all that it became in that it was okay to have love develop later on for many people. Whereas in the 18th century, love before marriage was very much the sort of must have prerequisite of a marriage. So this is really the the time in history where like our modern day notions of love start to really crystallize and take shape. At least when I was growing up, that was very much the thing. I do feel like now like young people especially are like, we are giving poly, we are giving open, we are giving like multiple ways, to, which is like fierce. But 
it still is in many places like very much like that. Do you think that's fair to say? Yes. And it's also the period, I think, when Valentine's Day emerges as a modern celebration. It's a crucial sort of bridge between the older sort of early modern rituals and the modern commercial Valentine's Day. Let's get into it. It's time for Valentine's Day. It's interesting for me at 35 because like, I feel like I've experienced Valentine's Days in lots of ways, like single, furious, happy, on drugs, not on drugs, like, you know, listening to the breakup song, really not listening to the breakup song, like, you know, super feeling hopeless. I, I haven't done it divorced knock on wood and hopefully I like won't so like not saying that I've experienced in every way but like I've had a variation of experiences with Valentine's Day is this holiday like really named after St. Valentine and who is that so yes it is named after St. Valentine but no he didn't have anything to do with love or romance or dating and so on was he about like pillaging and stuff was he like not cool or was he like well he was a saint but who knows anymore yeah, yeah, yeah. He wasn't. He wasn't pillaging. More, uh, you know, preaching. Yes, more like Christian pillaging, which is like a different kind. Yeah, because even Mother Teresa, honey, we learned she was she ran a she was hardcore. Okay, we talked to two of her like former nuns. Really intense. Uh, that little lady packed a wall up. Okay, so uh, was the holiday originally about love then, or was it about like was it about being like not a slut? <laughs> well, it, it, it was originally a feast day. It was in the 14th century that it first became associated with love. And that's because of poets like Geoffrey Chaucer uh, started to describe the 14th of February as marking the onset of spring, which is why I thought I'd wear my spring jumper. It's, <laughs> it's a time of blossoming and romance. They talked about how birds would, you know, shake off the winter, welcome the summer sun and choose their mates for the year. And the irony of that is that it's still absolutely bloody freezing in England in February. You know, it's snowing here at the moment. The average temperature in February is about seven degrees, but it's stuck. And the day after that became associated with with pairing and, and mating rituals. Coming from the middle of America, where it's very cold in February, I get that. It's like the first time that you see the high be like 44. You're like, oh my God, I'm wearing shorts. <laughs> and then you just like really hope that it's going to like get warm faster, but then it like is going to probably still be really cold and snowy till like March or whatever. So, so in the 1300s, it starts to become more associated with like, you know, spring budding, picking your mate, like love yeah. things, which is really cute. What about that little bare bottomed Cupid running around in their little white, sash like shooting people with arrows like is that a long 18th century thing so cupid he was a roman god of love and affection so you know as soon as people started associating it with coupling and mating and so on then you know cupid was sort of part and parcel of that when does it become like honey did you get your card for your love like were people <laughs> obsessed with the new holiday or were they like stupid and then it became popular <laughs> So we do have like occasional examples of people sending presents on Valentine's Day over the 15th and 16th centuries. So they might send a bit of jewelry or maybe a traditional romantic gift like gloves, but it wasn't widespread. And it was only in the 17th century that it seems to have become really popular among people of all social classes. And that's when you might meet to do something really fun, like having a, a Valentine's lottery to celebrate the day. Oh, that's cute. Is that like a Valentine's Day potluck with lots of couples or something? So uh, if you're going to have a lottery, okay, you'd meet on Valentine's Eve, which is on the 13th of February, and you'd all put your names in a hat 
And then you'd all draw a name from a hat and that person was your Valentine. So you didn't choose who you wanted. Oh. You, you'd get it by, uh, by chance. And then uh, the men would pin the names to their hats and the women would pin it to their bodices and they'd all dance around and be merry. And the men would write poems for the women, sort of celebrating their love. I can show you one, actually. Do you want to see? Yes. This is a poem uh, that was written from someone called Benjamin Pender to a woman called Kate, uh, and it was written for a lottery. So he would have picked her name out of a hat. So she was his Valentine. It's from 1723. And then he would have written her this poem. Fuck, that's 300 years ago to this year. It's incredible that it survived because it's ephemera. You know, you know, like bus tickets or receipts today, the sort of thing that you'd chuck away. You know, he would have picked her name out of a hat, written this poem, which somehow has survived. What's he say? It says, since on this day, each bird doth choose his mate, like I was saying. So though I make choice of you, my charming Kate, till Easter next, my Valentine to be, and ever after that, adored by me. How fucking cute is that? Okay, not to be a nightmare who clearly listens to morbid podcasts a lot. Was there ever like a time when like one of these Valentine's lotteries turned deadly? I love how that's where you go after seeing this. The calligraphy of it or whatever is really giving like violent murder. But then when you read it, it's sweet. But like, I just associate those writings with like murder because of Jack the Ripper. Do you not? Just look at this beautiful romantic token, Jonathan. And then think about the bloody murders. This is what 18th century handwriting looks like. Murder or no murder. It's very beautiful. It's very, yes, you're right. And it's not murder. Also, this is the time when you said like Valentine's Day is like a popular thing by the 1600s. Or at least we have evidence historically of it happening like across social classes, like by the 1600s. Yeah, visitors to England said that much to do was made of Valentine's Day by high and low and rich and poor. So rich people were taking part in lotteries, poor people were. By this point, it had become a genuinely popular festival. So that Valentine's Day lottery thing, it's like if you were already happily in a couple, you wouldn't be going to that. So it was really kind of at first like more for single people? Or would you be in a couple and still go to a Valentine's thing and then get like a different Valentine? Yeah, so you could be married and still draw a valentine. It was just a bit of fun that, you know, associated with misrule and, you know, communal festivity and dancing and, you know. What if someone picked a valentine and then they cheated on their, like, spouse and then wanted to divorce them in that time? That just never happened? Well, it wasn't really to do with sex. But isn't everything about sex, darling? Or was it really not then? Not really, no. If you were married, you could still take part in a Valentine's lottery. You know, pick a Valentine. A child could be your Valentine. Oh. It was about, you know, celebrating neighborliness, families. Oh, that's cute. Yeah, it was sort of, I wouldn't say sexless, but it wasn't about sex in the way that, you know, people might think it is today, you know, going out for a nice meal and... A snog. Exchanging presents and... Yes, of course. (laughs) A little, like, snogging after. Okay, so if you had a crush, like, was this the time of year when people be like, will you be my Valentine and, like, not go to the lottery because, like, they had a crush on them or... Well, there's some really interesting superstitions from the time and there's some quite funny stories of people taking part in them. So some people believe your Valentine was the first person you saw on the morning of the 14th of February and you had to greet them with a kiss. And so there's some funny stories like... um, 
there's a diarist called Samuel Pepys in the 17th century. And he wrote in his diary about how his wife was walking around the house with her hands over her eyes so that she couldn't see the painter and decorators because she didn't want to have a painter for her Valentine. That's cute. And he talks about knocking on a friend's door on the morning of the 14th of February uh, and refusing to go in until he was told whether there was a man or a woman on the other side because he wanted to make sure he had a woman for his Valentine. So same-sex Valentines could be a thing if you drew a guy and you were a guy or if you were a girl and a girl. Like, they say, like, hey, fine, like, it's a Valentine's Day or it's like my best friend's day. I think men drew women or women drew men, but you could, I think women certainly did send Valentine cards later on to their friends. Cute. You write that the holiday evolved in the late 1700s, early 1800s. What set this era of Valentine's Day apart from the earlier celebrations? So earlier on, you might take part in a lottery. Children were much more involved in the celebration. They might go knocking on doors, asking for presents and singing songs. And they'd sing things like, Moro, Moro, Valentine. First it's yours and then it's mine. So please give me a Valentine. So it's more about sort of neighbors and families and lotteries. But then over the course of the 18th century, these communal parts of the celebration declined. And instead, people, especially people of higher status in those in urban areas, they wanted to choose a Valentine themselves. It was less about having someone come to you by chance and more about selecting one person who was going to be your Valentine in the the sense that we would understand it today. That's cute. So what kind of like social and cultural factors led to that, like just more money, like just more self-determination, like what what kind of led to that? So firstly, the church was trying to suppress what they saw as unchristian, sacrilegious, superstitious rituals. And Valentine's Day was one of those things that was associated with paganism and heathenism. Uh, so the clergy worked very hard to suppress Valentine's Day rituals in that sense. At the same time, writers and philosophers of what we call the Enlightenment. So it was a philosophical movement across Europe and America where people were defining themselves as being in a new age of of reason. The motto of the Enlightenment was dare to know. And in emphasizing the importance of reason and rationality and opposition to superstition, Valentine's Day and celebrations like that was sort of recast as being ridiculous. You know, they were superstitious. They were incompatible with the new age of reason. And writers argued that Valentine's Day was only something for children and fools because it was associated with dreams and predicting a future husband and, you know, luck rather than reason. And then also, most importantly, there was a celebration of the ideology of romantic love. It was celebrated as a force for good, the reason for all the good in the world, people wrote. And people wanted to marry for love because it was seen as essential for their long-term happiness. Um, And I mean, you will know about the importance that people attached to happiness in the later 18th century from things like the Declaration of Independence, right? So it talks about uh, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So that it followed, therefore, that people wanted to choose their Valentines themselves to secure their long-term happiness rather than leaving it up to chance. So that whole like monarchy, like Bridgerton, like it's her debut season or whatever, is that going on kind of at the same time? Because doesn't Bridgerton like 18... So 
over the 18th century, social elites withdrew from these communal practices like lotteries and would have been more interested in choosing one valentine for themselves and perhaps, you know, sending them a card, for example. When I think about like the 90s, it's like, I think about like the way that the internet like changed the economy. Last year, we talked about like the post office and the printing press and its kind of role in changing things at that time because it also like shifted economy and how people buy things, how people access information, etc. But how did the rise of the post office and the printing press, those innovations, how did they affect Valentine's Day? So the 18th century saw a boom in all different kinds of printed paper goods. So newspapers, pamphlets, satirical prints, trade cards, which are like business cards today, printed writing papers and greetings cards, most importantly. And they changed how people celebrated Valentine's Day because it meant that you could buy a Valentine card from a shop instead of having to make it yourself. They were quite cheap to buy from a shop. It would only cost you a few pence. And I suppose it was a desirable consumer object. But at the same time, handmade valentines did have that special meaning because the sender had taken the time and the care to make it with their own hands. I can show you, actually, if you want to see. I'd love to see, yes. Okay, here we go. I'll show you an example of a handmade valentine. So this... Uh, It's a handmade valentine. It was sent from someone in Manchester to someone in Liverpool in 1783. Uh, And in the middle, you can see there's a shepherd and a shepherdess surrounded by birds standing in a woodland. It's all sort of natural imagery. It's about a sort of perfect, idealised country life. And they're standing in the middle of the sun. And then growing out of that are four trees. And then there's hearts surrounded by foliage and berries in all of the corners. Uh, So you can see they're really beautiful objects, handmade valentines that people had spent a lot of time and care perfecting. I want a handmade valentine like that. That's gorgeous. Whereas commercial ones, they were cheaper to buy and they coexisted alongside the handmade ones throughout the 18th century. And then what was the deal with like the comic valentines? What's that? Comic valentines. I mean, they're called comic, but they're really cruel. It's more like uh, hate mail. Uh, So they were cruel valentines uh, that were printed with like really mean caricatures on single sheets of paper. And they weren't sent by couples, but they were sent by members of the community, so people that they didn't like. And they're an example of how the older and more disruptive aspects of the celebration persisted over the centuries. It was like if you had a neighbor you hated or like someone that you just really couldn't stand, you would just like send them a mean ass card. Yeah, yeah, for one, yeah. This one's called The Snake in the Grass. It's got a picture of a snake in the grass. It says, a snake in the grass, we all with horror view you. And such a creeping reptile now are you. Deceit and cunning to your aid you bring. And even your dearest friends you off would sting. A thing like you by none can ever be prized as creep along both hated and despised. And those who know you never would repine to see you crushed, you sneaking valentine. They're really horrible. Wow. That was like an Instagram takedown of 17 whatever yeah it's a takedown they're they're cruel they wouldn't have been signed you'd have just bought it really cheaply saying something nasty it was all like oh you're a snake you're unattractive you're never going to get married everybody hates you and then you go to someone's house and put it under their door so they could see it when they were a couple valentine's day i wonder when people started saying like fuck you bitch i think we should bring that back 
like hate Valentine, like old school, like put it on your doorstep. Like, but it, with the ring cam, we would know who left it now, which would be interesting. Yeah, you could watch, watch somebody even you hate well on the doorstep. So what about like flowers, like jewelry, chocolates? Like when do those start to become like readily given like Valentine's Day gifts? Men did sunflowers as gifts, uh, as well as other sort of things that smelled nice. So you might send flowers or perfumed gloves, perfume bottles, baskets of fruit. They did send jewelry as a gift, things like necklaces or bracelets or brooches or rings. They didn't particularly send chocolate yet. They might send sweets, but um, those sorts of small, delicate chocolates that you might send today, that's more a product of the 19th and 20th centuries. And then they would also send sort of popular consumer goods like printed textiles, furs, writing accessories like inkwells and stands and seals, because this is before people used envelopes. You'd fold your letter up when you were finished, drip wax onto it, and then stamp it with a seal. So you could send someone a seal as a, as a gift. That's cute. And many of these in the 18th century were made specifically for lovers as a, a new market. In your heartbreak research, have you seen a link between like Valentine's Day and proposals? Like, did people start to take Valentine's Day like later on? Like, is like a time to be like, oh, I'm going to like propose marriage like around Valentine's Day, or it's not so much of a thing. Not really. Marriage is too important. I don't think you would propose necessarily just because it's Valentine's Day. The superstitions were that you might choose your Valentine on that day and that was a good sign that you would get married later. But it doesn't mean you would necessarily get engaged on that day or get married on that day. It, uh, it was just a bit of sort of fun, really. So do you think today's Valentine's Day celebrations would be recognizable to someone like if I was a ghost from Georgian England and I just like popped in for this Valentine's Day, I probably wouldn't recognize it because I'd be like, why are all these blokes kissing each other? And why are all these ladies doing that? And what's gender nonconformity? Like, so I probably wouldn't get it. Or would I? I mean, I think the 18th century set up a lot of the practices that we have today. So they would recognize things like choosing a Valentine sending them a card you know they would certainly have recognized this commercial world of romance that we have now where love is something that can be bought and sold valentine's day was becoming a commercial event for the georgians they had state lotteries on valentine's day you could buy a ticket for a valentine lottery to maybe win lots of money so i mean they weren't strangers to the world of commerce it's like Instagram declarations of love, they probably would be into that because they they like loved a declarative moment because they would do like the pretty letter and like be really into somebody publicly, right? So they would probably get into Instagram. Yeah, I mean, they weren't unfamiliar with like people publicly declaring their love. And this was the period as well that saw the birth of the Lonely Hearts ad in the newspapers. What's that? Well, you know, you could advertise for a, a husband wife by putting an advert in the newspaper and then people would reply to it. Okay, you know what's so cute? In our Queer History Getting Curious episode, like from years ago with like Matthew Reamer and Leighton Brown, I was saying how like, oh, like I felt like I was like the first queer person from my hometown ever. And they showed me these classifieds from the 60s from this local paper that were like, 
essentially gay man seeking gay man, but using like coded terms like seeking a new friend. I'd had a friend for a long time, but he wouldn't move out from living with his mother. And I knew it was time for me to find a new friend. So yeah. And then what about like such this emphasis? Because it does seem extremely commercial now. Like, and maybe it's just because of the way that we access our information online and it's just always kind of around, like, but it feels like the second that we turn off Mariah's Christmas album, it's like Valentine's, Valentine's, Valentine's. And there's this like pressure. Do you think that people from like, from Georgian England would, would recognize that commercialization and like just all the stores with all the cards and feeling like you got to send your person something? Or do you think it's more pressure now? I think what we have is a much more extreme version of what they had then. It's more the commercialization has got so much more intense. But I mean, uh, there's some really interesting cards you can look at that survived from the Victorians. So in the 19th century, uh, with the cards, they buy a really elaborate. So like you could buy a card that had two birds nesting on the front and it was made with real twigs. (laughs) Or you could buy a card with someone looking at a mirror on it and it was a real mirror made of real glass. You could get ones uh, with hair that had real hair on. So like they had proper sort of Valentines as commercial products and you could go shopping in stores for it to select the most attractive one. Ah, oh my God, I love it. Okay, wait. So like as an expert in the history of Valentine's Day, which like maybe one of my favorite sentences I've ever said on Getting Curious, like what a fun expert that you get to be. And if that ain't a message for like chasing what, brings you passion that I don't know what is. Like, I love that you were like, I'm really into like the historical significance of Valentine's Day and I'm going to make a whole ass career out of it. That is really fucking cool. I just have to say it's really cool. But do you celebrate the day? Like, what's been your experience of like, did you ever find yourself being a little Bridget Jonesy and like being like, ah, meeting moldy cheese because that fucker cheated on me and didn't even admit it. I mean, I remember when I was at school, people used to send uh, red roses. Yeah, oh my God, in junior high, that's literally coming screaming back. I forgot about the fucking roses and I would never get any. But I will say this for Mrs. Schaefer in second grade. In second grade, we made these like red construction paper hearts that were like the size of like both of our heads put together, like boop, boop, like, and then you could put notes in it. And in second grade, I did really good. Like everyone was like leaving everybody really cute notes. But like I had hella notes. I did not get left out like in ninth grade. Uh, But like those card things, like if you're an elementary school teacher, you need like a little thing on Valentine's Day for like, I don't know where you find it. Like maybe Google like red heart construction paper project. It was giving origami, but bigger and not as culturally interesting. Uh, But yeah, it was really cool. I just had to say. When I was a kid, you know, people would send red roses. Girls and boys would send them in school. But, you know, ironically, now I'm an adult. I'm, you know, I, I wouldn't want a rose as a gift anyway on Valentine's Day because they're just so generic. They're so commercial. They have massive environmental cost as well. You know, they're flown in from the other side of the world for Valentine's Day. Oh, because it's not... I was like, actually, darling, I don't know what part of England you're from, but I've seen lots of roses there. But I guess, of course, darling, it's the spring. Yeah, it's pretty cold. There's no roses blooming here right now. There's snow on the ground. Well, fuck me. But what about other stuff? Do you celebrate it in, but not with flowers? I wouldn't say no to some nice local flowers. Some nice, I'd never say no to some chocolates. <laughs> or some snowbells. That's like a nice local flower for England, like those white flowers. A snowdrop. 
Yeah, the snowdrop. Do you watch Gardener's World with Monty Don? I do watch Gardener's World. It's a really good show. It's like one of my top three favorite British shows. I watch it almost every night. That's how I knew about what snowdrops are. <laughs> so some locally sourced flowers, yes. Not roses. Unless you grew them during season, cut them, dried them, ground shipped it, kept it in a closet for like, you know, seven months. And then you could give them dried flowers that are still really beautiful and maybe didn't have such an environmental impact. Ah, Nice little flowers, nice chocolate. I just, I, uh, you know, I have gone out for dinner on Valentine's Day before, but they, they jack the prices up so much. It costs a fortune. Uh, and you think, well, does that, just having that really expensive scent menu with the expensive jewelry and the, the roses and everything, is that really the only way that we can express love now through, you know, through money? I love a bath present. Like, can you give me a bath soak or like, like, I just love a bath. Like, can you give uh-huh. me some like great bath oil or like not to constantly talk about my husband, but like he got me a fucking like stick on the back of the bath pillow so that you don't have to like, like and like get all cold when you like put your back on it. It's like, now I got like a pillow, like it's nice. so chic and he's like so thoughtful and cute. Like, so I love like a bath moment. That's like the gift of leisure and, me time, you know? Yes. Get rid of the roses and the luxury chocolates and diamond rings. I think the celebration used to be a lot more about community, about neighbors, about family rather than money. So I would perhaps bring back some customs. Like people used to bake Valentine buns. I'll show you a picture. Hold on. I fucking love buns. Who <laughs> doesn't love buns? I mean, come on. So this is a Valentine bun. Oh, it looks a bit like a spotted dick. It's like an ice bun without any icing. Do you have ice buns in the States? Yesterday, someone had the nerve to say to me with a fucking straight face, like, I don't like hot cross buns. And I was like, don't fucking (laughs) say stuff that you don't understand. Because it's literally like a goddamn British cinnamon roll and it's gorgeous and it's so delicious. I love a hot cross bun. I'm I'm violent about... like. You know what? Do you know what my favorite British dessert is? Not to go off on a tangent. Okay. Sticky toffee pudding. Oh, yeah. That would probably be my last meal. Like, that's my favorite. Like, I almost don't have words for how much I love sticky toffee pudding. Do you love it so much too? I do love sticky toffee pudding. I don't know where to make a good gift. It's a bit sticky. <laughs> I can't promise that this is my last off subject question, but Mark is constantly telling me that if I'm going to really like nail my British accent, I have to pick a region and stay there. But I have this oh, yeah. habit of like, you know, I go every to every accent just to get through words that I may not know how to do in like that you know, home region accent. But after our two times being together, I've realized that if I was going to like case study an accent and try to fully rip one off, it would be your, I love, like what area are you from over there? That's got this cute ass accent. Thank you. Generic Southern accent. (laughs) I think my problem as an American is, is that everything sounds posh. Every British (laughs) accent sounds just elevated, regal, sexier, like better. But I know they're also different. So leave the pressure, embrace the fun would be yeah. for our Valentine's Day 2023. Yeah. And also leave the money, you know, make something yourself. Ah, okay. Love that. So most important question here. Is there anything else that we need to know before we wrap up this episode? You have been caps lock patient with me today. Like not <laughs> even capital P, just like caps lock. I appreciate it. I just love talking <laughs> to you so much. But is there anything Valentine's Day that we need to know that you would just be like remiss if you did not tell us. You can read more about the history of Valentine's Day and romantic rituals more broadly in my book, The Game of Love in Georgian England, uh, which is out now in paperback. 
So it's cheaper. It's uh, 25 quid. Ah, thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. We love you so much. And thank you so much for your work, Sally Holloway, Dr. Sally Holloway. Just thank you so much for coming and sharing your, just your scholarship, your work, everything that you work so hard on all the time. We can't wait for the new Heartbreak book. But in the meantime, we've got your gorgeous book, which you're going to give us the title of again right now. The Game of Love in Georgian England. And it's out now in paperback. We are reading that now until your Heartbreak book comes out. We love you so much. Thank you so much for coming on Getting Curious. Yay. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's been really fun. You've been listening to Getting Curious with me, Jonathan Van Ness. Our guest this week was Sally Holloway. You'll find links to her work in the episode description of whatever you're listening to the show on. Our theme music is Freak by Quinn. Thank you so much to her for letting us use it. If you enjoyed our show, introduce a friend, honey, and please show them how to subscribe because that is how we keep the lights on. Follow us on Instagram and Twitter at CuriousJVN. Our editor is Andrew Carson. Getting Curious is produced by me, Erica Gatto, and Zara Krim. Give it up. Yes. <laughs>